You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. With me today is social impact brand strategist, Daniel Jocelyn Otu. Danielle developed a passion for brand development and marketing upon building her own platform for women in 2013, the female department. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in human relations, she went on to provide organizations, both big and small, with her brand strategy and social media expertise. Now a seasoned professional in the field, Danielle followed the call to community work and service and is now helping nonprofit organizations scale to new heights with her unique ability to generate brand interaction through captivating storytelling. Danielle, welcome to The Catalyst. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy you're here. And I want to start by saying before bringing any guests onto the show, I'll always ask their view on change. And I often get answers like change is necessary and change is constant and change is inevitable. Mm. But your opinion on change is one that I have yet to see. (laughs) You view change as a multi-lane highway. What does that mean to you? I view change as essentially a road that um, has many lanes. So I think the old addendum is in French, it's tous les chemins mènent à home. So all, all roads lead to Rome. Um, and I essentially think that with change, that's very much the case in that one depends on, on personal change. There are many roads to personal change and, and we might mess up and start again or take a detour. Um, and I kind of see it as like a GPS and that you're going to the same direction, but you can take many routes. Mm. And then when it comes to social change, I like to think that there are many lanes because there are many contributors to social change and collective change. Um, and contrary to personal change, everybody has a role to play in the role, in the um, outcome of how a society ends up evolving. Mm. So taking that analogy of a multi-lane highway, do you believe that there are certain lanes to step into, say, if you want to accelerate change, or maybe if you're, you know, I'm thinking about being on the highway and driving. And so you've got Mm -hmm. that kind of the blow past lane when you've got somewhere to be, you've got those (laughs) who are, you know, perhaps on a little bit of a slower pace, stick to the right. Is, Is the concept still the same? I would think so. I would think like if I talk if we talk about personal change, for example, I think the blow past um, lane would probably be healing work and like personal development work. Mm. I think folks who are devoted to really getting to the root of their limiting beliefs um, and where they stem from and and how to heal from those tend to get to where they want to be a little bit quicker um, than folks who aren't necessarily comfortable getting uncomfortable and sitting in the messiness that oftentimes we need to sort through in order to kind of tap into our full potential. Mm, I like that. You're in the process of making some significant changes in your life. And I'm going to start with the professional evolution that you're going through. 
what are you looking to change in the work that you're doing? Yeah. So my background is very much in, I think like you, we both studied human relations mm-hmm. um, and we both ended up in, in marketing and communications just because I like to think that, you know, you need, marketing communications is very much knowing how to relate to humans. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I think that for me, working in the community sector, what I've noticed is this huge, huge, huge gap between the knowledge that the private sector and the business world holds um, when it comes to marketing and communications and growth and innovation and the knowledge that the nonprofit sector and the community sector has. Um, and so I, I, I often stumble upon organizations doing such great work and, and folks who are involved in such amazing initiatives that believe that, you know, um, or that don't know better that then, you know, doing God's work, you don't need to package it well. And you don't need to have a brand strategy and a communication strategy and an outreach strategy. Mm. Um, and then I also feel like the nonprofit sector and the community sector holds so much knowledge when it comes to change um, and engaging with the community and having a positive impact that the private sector can learn from. Absolutely. And so for me, um, social innovation and change really looks like bringing those two worlds together because right now there's a lot of like, you know, you're either in the profit and the business world or you're in the nonprofit sector and it's the, not, the business world makes a lot of money, the nonprofit sector does not. Whereas I really feel like the, what the future looks like is a lot of um, intersectoral and cross-sectoral work in order for all actors of society to contribute to what tomorrow is going to look like. Are you working on any projects in particular that help to blend both worlds? Yeah. I mean, my work at Apathy is Boring is essentially that as their head of communications. Um, I'm really keen on providing the organization with a very clear um, marketing strategy, essentially. So since I've been there in the last two years, we've grown tremendously just from our our online reach and our general outreach efforts. Um, And I really think that it's because we were able to apply those strategies. And then I'm working with um, an organization called P10 that works with LGBTQ plus youth. um, And I'm kind of helping them redirect their efforts in a more strategic way also. I can, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, of orgs that I'm currently kind of working alongside and it's been really eye-opening. I can imagine. And I definitely understand the value that you bring from a brand awareness and a communications perspective because it is our way to evoke emotion. It's the mm-hmm. way to connect with people on a really human level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things I think the nonprofit sector does really, really well is understanding the communities that they're in, really understanding their pain points. Because I see more on the corporate side, we kind of get maybe lost in the bells and whistles of the products and services that we're bringing to market and less about the people who will be impacted by them. Exactly. And so it's really nice to see that there's a blend. There's also an undeniable shift that's happening on the personal front Mm -hmm. and perhaps 
increasingly more prevalent. I'd love to know what some of the changes are that you're faced with or are working through in your social circle right now. Ooh, so in my social circle, I grew up in, um, in predominantly white neighborhoods and uh, attended private school. So a large part of my friends are white. And so obviously given the current context, a lot of my conversations now are, um, are about what's happening mm-hmm. um, or revisiting past experiences that you know, they perhaps overlooked. Um, resharing my experience, my lived experiences with them. And they oftentimes didn't know what I was going through because I, I myself really wasn't able to put words to it, but I also didn't feel comfortable. I didn't think they'd understand. So there's like a, a new level of, of intimacy and trust and understanding and awareness that's developing in my social circles um, as a result of these conversations arising. And do you find that those conversations are bringing you closer together as friends or have they been eye-opening in a way that you've realized there are some people in your circle who may not be aligned with you anymore? Mm-hmm. Thankfully in my circle, um, they've brought us closer, I'd say. I think there was a moment where I feared they wouldn't um, and I was very much kind of like waiting to see how my friends would go about it. And I was waiting to see if they would ask and I was waiting to see, you know, what their reactions were to my feedback and my commentary. But no, I think, I think I'm really proud to say that they're, they're learning and they're intentionally kind of doing their own homework, coming back to me with things that I don't even know, to be honest, like they're all watching, <laughs> they've all watched 13th on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet. So they're all having these conversations now in the group chat. So it's been relieving to, to, to see that. Do you feel ever that there's a sense of responsibility to explain and to answer questions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A bit too much often. I, I see all these quotes on Instagram that are like, you know, like, don't call your black friends and don't ask your black friends for shit. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I wish. But at the same time, I... I feel like if, if they can't come to me or if, if um, my contacts and my network can't ask me the questions, then who will they turn to? Mm. Um, and I don't want them to discourage, to, be, to feel discouraged from doing this work and from having these conversations. And so my, my MO for the past two weeks has been, you know what, like I'll do the emotional labor, whether it's um, with my friends, with my business contacts, with acquaintances, so long as I'm convinced that folks will also do their part. Right. Um, So if I feel like I'm going into something that's just me talking into thin air, then I'll very quickly put down those boundaries. But if I genuinely believe that the intentions are sincere and that folks are wanting to equally do just as much emotional labor on their end, then then yeah, let's do it. Because I I genuinely believe that these conversations are necessary for change to occur. Mm something that you wrote in a recent article was particularly eye-opening for me. And first of all, the way you write is so beautiful. I feel like Mm. I could just read your articles all day long. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. But I mean, this one, I I didn't want to read all day long because it was 
it was particularly challenging to read. It was a tough subject. It's on the topic of racial trauma. Mm -hmm. And as much as I appreciated learning a new perspective, and honestly, I had not heard racial trauma as a term or condition before. And it, in reading your article, it was like mind blowing to me that some of the things that were so that were stated so matter of fact were like, how could I have missed this? How could mm-hmm. I not have connected the dots that this must be so difficult? And for yeah. those who are listening who are who are not familiar with racial trauma, can you give us an explanation of not only what it is, but why it ought to be recognized? Yeah. So I mean, racial trauma is essentially the results of um, experiencing constant and continuous racial discrimination um, based on obviously the color of your skin. And similarly to other traumas, so like sexual trauma or childhood trauma, um, there are kind of somatic symptoms. So there's an increased level of anxiety, obviously. Um, There can be insomnia, there can be headaches, flashbacks, um, overvigilance, um, and the hard part with racial trauma, contrary to other forms of traumas, is that it can never fully be healed, quote unquote, um, or it could be healed, but it's difficult because your abuser is the very system that you're operating and interacting with every single day of your life. Mm. Um, and so it would be the same thing as, you know, and I, I actually don't like to do comparative suffering, but it'd be... It, it, it would equate to for folks who are like, well, what does that mean? The sexual trauma survivor having to live and be faced with their abuser every single day of their life. Mm-hmm. And I think folks can recognize that like, yeah, that's messed up. And we recognize that, you know, childhood trauma is messed up and any types of trauma in general are messed up, but there's so much um, or so little rather that's known about, racial trauma and the fact that many black and indigenous people of color are walking around with that deeply repressed inside of them. Has it been your experience to, to have the flashbacks or the nightmares or the headaches? Mm -hmm. I, I want to say that my somatic symptoms are, um, are less severe because I haven't I, I consider myself privileged um, and I haven't necessarily had any traumatic experiences with the system. Um, what I have had though are microaggressions. Um, what I have had are, you know, false accusations or just little looks, comments. Um, and so the symptom that I identify the most with is one, the anxiety mm. and um, the hyper, hypervigilance especially in predominantly white spaces. So I live in a predominantly white neighborhood and um, I'm very careful about when I run, how I walk, how I talk, how I, where I look, um, how I'm presented, how I'm perceived. And that takes a toll on you mentally. I can't even begin to imagine. And do you think that those, the way that you conduct yourself has been a result of the microaggressions or because you, you just want to avoid those things from happening? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. Mm. Um, 
I think you or I, I'll speak and I, I've learned how to assimilate at a young age. I've learned to um, speak in a certain way and behave in a certain way and dress in a certain way in order to be perceived in a certain way. And um, as a result of that, have probably experienced less microaggressions, but I'm also very aware when I do um, experience microaggressions of how to dodge them or how to avoid them or how to ignore them or how to face them. So it's really a bit of both. And how do you face them or ignore them? I mean, to be honest, at this point in my journey, I'm very comfortable calling them out. Mm. Um, I I think that speaks to also kind of the cultural shift that's happening and the fact that we're able to very clearly name what a microaggression is. And this is why language is super important. Um, And words are super important because they allow people to contextualize their experiences. And so just by simply becoming aware of the term microaggressions in in the last one to two years, I'm very clearly able to be like, oh yes, this is one, this is one. And so I'm able to call it out for what it is. And I'm able to Um, confront someone that's um, saying something inappropriate or Mm. set a boundary if I feel like someone has overstepped the familiarity, especially within a work context. So it becomes, it it has become easier for me. And I think in general that comes with growth and just knowing how to set boundaries, but it can be very difficult at a young age when you don't know what's happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was out for brunch with a friend last summer and we both got there at the same time. She didn't realize that I was right behind her and the hostess came up and my friend who's a black woman said, oh, I'm, I'm meeting a friend here. And she said, yeah, they're over there and pointed to a table of other black women. And mm. she said, no, that's not them. <laughs> mm. I don't see my friend here yet. And it happened like so quickly and this is all happening literally right before my eyes and and I'm looking and I'm and so I just kind of speak at him I'm like oh I'm, I'm right here you know like we can grab a table yeah and and she looked at me and looked at both of us and said you can join them in the corner in the corner in the because that's where the the table the other, was right yeah. but it was just like in a relatively empty restaurant yeah. it just felt so uncalled for first yeah. of all to assume that we that my friend was joining that table. And yeah. then when she said no, still say, we'll go in the corner anyway. Mm. And did you speak up? I honestly didn't know how. I didn't know what to say. And so yeah. I, I talked about it with my friend who is explaining, oh yeah, you know, this is not the first time this has happened. And you know, this is, I have no problem speaking up. This is her talking. Yeah. And I was so baffled that, and honestly felt like, frustrated that I didn't have the words to say something. Yeah. And it was I think a lot of folks feel that way. Yeah. And it was just one, it was one of the, I guess the times in most recent memory where I was just like, how, how's this shit still happening? <laughs> hmm. And it's crazy because I'm more fascinated by how unfazed we've become as mm-hmm. black people by it. Um, and I was, I was actually talking to my white friends the other day and I was asking them, you know, how they were doing. And they're like, uh, no, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing good. All things, all things given, to be honest, 
these conversations aren't new to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's new is, I think, being so unapologetic and being so open about them. But it's definitely, these are are backroom conversations amongst ourselves that we're not bringing to the light and they're feelings that we felt for a very, very long time. So when I was telling my friends, like, I'm checking in on you to see how you're feeling because I know that this is new to you. It's not new to me. Um, so when you say your friend was completely unfazed, I'm like, yeah, that's, that to me is what's fascinating. It's like, wow, we've, we've, it's so, it's so normal to us. Yeah. It's one of the things that I'm hearing a lot with my friends who I'm checking in on and it has become, I think, a point of frustration for my black friends and saying like this, this can't be normal. Like we cannot accept this as normal because this is what part of the reason that kind of blocks change is that when mm-hmm. we don't seem phased and it is accepted by normal, accepted as normal by everyone. Absolutely. When you're talking about racial trauma in the article that you wrote, you also talked about grief and you identified the five stages of grief and explained how healing racial trauma is particularly challenging considering racial wounds occur, as you mentioned earlier, kind of the aggressor is, is always around. Mm-hmm. So in a sociopolitical context, how, how can you navigate? How can you express who you are, how you're thinking, the work that you're doing while feeling perhaps like you're also under a microscope? Are you speaking to me specifically as yeah. in- um, I mean, to be honest, I take my, my healing work very seriously. Um, I devote a lot of time and a lot of energy to not only becoming a better person, but really, really digging into my childhood traumas and really understanding what experiences in my life have shaped the way I show up in the world. And um, growing up, in predominantly white spaces, I've realized, I've come to realize through my healing work has played a very big part in how I show up in the world and, um, or not, or don't show up in the world. So in, in the parts of me that I hide, in the parts of me that I shrink. And there's this quote that says that, you know, most black people that you work with, um, aren't fully themselves you mm-hmm. to, to be black in, in the workspace or in or in unsafe spaces means to shrink a big part of your identity whether that's in the way you dress whether that's in the way you style your hair whether that's in the way that you speak um, the conversations that you have we very much have to edit how we show up in the world constantly every day and that was a major realization for me and I realized like wow I've spent my whole entire life I'm 30 years old now and I've spent you know a third of my life walking around with the belief that me just showing up as myself wasn't good enough Mm. and that's 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 a really heavy one thing to realize to burden to carry Um, but it's such an empowering realization. And from that moment forward, I was able to stop doing that. 
And so I think that one, acknowledging what the issue is, um, hence racial trauma, and, and really naming what certain things are and, and naming what the trigger is, allows folks and me personally to move forward with the healing journey because you can't heal what you don't acknowledge. That's pretty powerful. Thank you. So for any Black listeners who are tuning in and thinking, yeah, absolutely, this is my day-to-day, I cannot show up to work as my full self. I've had to shrink myself at the behest of my, you know, my boss, my team. What can change? What can change in your opinion in the workplace and how can, how can support be offered? I think for me, this is where one, um, allyship is necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, and the importance of having folks who step in and intervene and advocate um, and are high enough to change things um, in the company culture. And then two, I think, I think a lot of, a lot of companies are focused right now on, you know, diversity and inclusion and training the staff. And, but really, if you don't get down to the core of the issue, um, which is oftentimes culture um, and beliefs that, that, that kind of trickle from the top down, then all you're doing is, is putting, you know, Black employees or Black staff in an unsafe space. Mm. Um, and so you can, you can have all the diversity and inclusion talks in the world, but if at the core of it, the environment isn't safe, it's, it's pointless. And so I, I think when we talk about work culture, we really need to dig in um, and really name that what needs to change is the environment and how is it that we can make Black folks um, or an, and other people of color feel safe at work to show up you know, with their hair in an afro in however which way form they 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 wish, mm-hmm. you know, and how that manifests oftentimes in workplaces is that you'll people will say like, oh well, you know, like the black people always stick together, yeah, because it's safe. Mm. That's literally all that's happening here is that the black people who stick together in the work culture feel like it's the only space that they have to fully show up as themselves, which is a completely normal human and animal instinct even. So to dig into that a little bit deeper, because I've worked with several companies who are looking to either enhance the culture or really get crystal clear on their values and start kind of walking the talk and assessing really what is our employee experience. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what I've observed is that they don't recognize that there is an issue, which in and of itself is an issue. The biggest issue of all, yeah. Right. And, but so how do they, how would you recommend that they can start this conversation without, maybe I'll ask it a different way, because mm-hmm. some of the, the leaders that I have worked with have felt that they didn't want to assume there was an issue in the event there wasn't, and therefore they just didn't bring it up. 
-hmm. or they figured if it was someone would speak up or put their hand up. And so, you know, if, if what we're experiencing is no, because that's not safe, I'm just going to shrink myself. I'm going to stick with the fellow black employees and we're going to just continue to do our work and move on. Like without that dialogue from both parties, it's really difficult to enact change. And so how can leaders who are wanting to make sure that their employees are feeling heard and comfortable and create mm-hmm. that safe space. Like how do you bring that conversation up? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm a big follower of Brene Brown. Mm. And um, she speaks to when it comes to culture specifically, obviously the importance of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And she also has this, this, term or th- that she's coined and that we've kind of really um, adopted in the context of my work in our leadership team, which is um, FFD and stands for fucking first time. And it's the importance of acknowledging when the discomfort that comes um, up when you're doing something for the very first time and the importance of naming that. Um, so as a leader, for example, if you want to open up this this discussion, doing so in a very vulnerable way and, you know, sitting down with your black staff and saying, you know what, this is a very uncomfortable conversation for me. And this is the first time that I'm doing it and I'm not going to do it right, but I want to learn and I want to do better. And I want you folks to come in feeling more comfortable. So please tell me you know, what you're feeling. And that vulnerability coming from a leader, and vulnerability in general has the power to do that. It it gives folks um, the permission to do the same. Mm -hmm. That's a really great point. Yeah. So if you're coming into a conversation and you're being completely vulnerable and you're being completely honest and kind of bearing your heart in the situation and, and coming in completely transparent with how you're feeling, you're literally opening the doors for the folks to do the same. And I think that's the first step. So then how on the other side of the conversation, can, you, can we also empower Black employees to not feel like they're going to have a target on their back? Because I know I've been part of conversations that, you know, if you remove the layer of racism where I've been approached by leadership and they're saying, Hey, I'd really like your feedback on this. You know, that's not a safe space. You know, that if you voice something with certain leaders mm-hmm. that it will be held against you, or you're going to be you know, perceived as the one that is causing trouble or the one that is never satisfied. And so how can we mitigate that risk? I don't think that's a risk that can be mitigated, to be honest. Mm. Um, I really don't. I think we're really at a time where, I don't know if you're following all the brands that are being called out right now, um, you know, for their like performative activism. I really think now's the time for folks who are genuinely serious about changing things, whether it's um, the black folks in an organization and or the leaders in an organization. I think it's really the time to just bear, bear it all out. Mm-hmm. and take the risk because i mean the other the other option is to continue on bearing this load that to be honest we're fucking tired of bearing so i think 
for the black folks in the organization. It's like, honestly, take a stand. Um, and that, I mean, that's easier said than done, obviously, given your relationship. I think, actually, let me, let me modify that. I think if you're going to do so, um, maybe doing it with a leader who you know has your back and finding an ally in the organization who can, can cover for you. Mm-hmm. And I had recently read this really interesting article actually about that. Um, if, you know, if your job is on the line and if you're not feeling kind of completely safe to do so. But I think that we need to, it's time. Like there's no better time than now to have these conversations. Right. You mentioned allyship and we're seeing with the recent movement that allies are rallied from across the globe and a lot of people are demanding change and many white allies, myself included, we're protesting in solidarity. We're participating in social trends like the Blackout Tuesday and consciously supporting Black-owned businesses, but we know that that's not enough. And so what, in your opinion, is going to make the biggest difference in sustaining change? I think, like anything else, actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. I think literally sitting down, buckling up, reading the book because all of these people are sharing all these wonderful books but like how many people are actually going to buy them and read them um having the conversations all of it for me allyship really happens offline i'm and i you had seen my my quote where i was saying that i'm i'm not interested in posting black squares and sharing the resources and um to me all of these things are necessary yes but if you're not also sitting down to address how the system lives in you and checking your own biases and Mm -hmm. checking your own assumptions um, and taking the time to research the history of, of the, and the context of everything that's going on, then, then the rest is, is useless Mm -hmm. because we often take the time to address these things from, you know, a policy lens and from a, a legal lens and, a marketing lens and a culture lens, but at the end of the day, the change that needs to happen are in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And the change that needs to happen, the sustainable change to your point, um, is going to stem from our own ability to dismantle the system within ourselves. And that's, that's really the crux of the work. Oof, that is so powerful and so, so true. When you see posts of white people saying, oh, I'm buying the book and I'm listening to the podcast and I'm, I'm doing the inner work and I'm asking myself some tough questions. Like when you see those posts, are you thinking, you know, it's about damn time or are you thinking, you know, good for you? Or are you thinking like, are you actually doing the work? Like, what are some of the thoughts <laughs> that <laughs> go through, through my your mind? mind? Yeah. I'm a bit torn, to be honest, because, you know, a lot of folks, there's a lot of conversation around um, if you're not posting, it's a privilege. And if you're not using your platform, then what are you doing? And, and to me, as someone who is super passionate about, you know, human relations and human behavior, I'm very aware that guilt and shame are not emotions that drive behavioral change. Mm -hmm. 
And so guilting or shaming someone into doing something is just going to lead them to pretend or to act. Um, whether that's in an interpersonal relationship or in a collective kind of setting. And so I think that we really need to be careful sometimes with the language and be mindful about inspiring folks to change um, and motivating folks to change. And then I also think that when we say, you know, do your own research and do your own work, it's really like folks really need to genuinely feel inspired to change Mm -hmm. and motivated to change and ready to kind of go guns blazing against the system because against uh, um, without that, it's just, it's just posting. Mm -hmm. So to your question, I mean, I I have a little bit of everything. I have a bit of like, why didn't you post? And then I see some folks posting and I'm like, you're posting too much. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, like that also, like posting too little and posting too much to me is, is almost equivalent, you know, when, when it's, there's, it's a form of like overcompensation if folks are always, you know, doing the most. So, I find myself also torn because I have like, as a white ally with a platform and growing audience, I do feel the responsibility of saying something. Mm-hmm. And I do feel the awkwardness of not knowing what to say. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I, I see some of these posts of fellow white allies saying that they're doing the work. And on one hand, I commend them because they also have audiences that if they can see themselves in the ones who are posting and thinking and just be reminded like, oh yeah, I did want to pick up that book or I did want to spend some time reflecting or calling Mm -hmm. one of my friends, then it's good. But it also feels a little disingenuous to me. Like why, Mm -hmm. like if it's inner work, why do you got to put it all over the place? (laughs) Yeah. Also, I want to be, you said, you said, you know, follow what white allies. I really want, I I think the term ally now is being thrown left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that what an ally is. Mm-hmm. And an ally is someone who stands up when nobody's in the room, when there's no cameras off. They stand up to their family. They stand up to the system. They're doing this work day in and day out when no one's looking. Um, And so I think that right now what we have is a lot of folks, you know, raising awareness, you know, volunteers (laughs) or, you know, a lot of, I don't even know what we can call them, but I really want to stress that folks don't just throw the term ally left, right and center, because I don't, I actually don't believe that everybody here is ready to do the actual work that an ally does. I think hopefully they'll get there, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of folks don't actually know what it takes or aren't ready to do what it takes to become an ally rather. I would agree with that. And I, it's something that I've even been challenged to really back my own, you know, statements and, and contributions and actions is that it's not just about joining a social media trend or a hashtag Mm -hmm. or joining a movement, but really, you know, like you said, what are you doing when 
not only when the cameras are off, but when your values are going to be tested by people who you love and your beliefs are going to be challenged by people that you work for. Mm -hmm. What do you do then? And what do you do when you have the opportunity to, so real allyship and a big, a really big important part of allyship is um, stepping down to create space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the hard work that folks aren't even ready to talk about yet. Because if, are you willing to move aside to give space to someone else? Are you willing to, so Blackout Tuesday, the intention was like, shh, just stop talking mm -hmm. and let us do the talking. Um, are you willing to share the mic? Are you willing to humble yourself and sit down in order to let somebody else stand up? That's the tough work because mm -hmm. our egos come into play and our values come into play and our desire to kind of, um, I mean, ego is the best term I could use. It's uh, allyship is constantly checking your ego at the door in order to create space for marginalized folks. Mm, and instead it has become almost like this badge where you can say it, yeah, I've, I've shown up this one time, therefore. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And now, yeah, people are just, it's literally a badge. Like if, it, if folks can have it on their Instagram bio, I'm sure it's gonna become like a new trend, like <laughs> hashtag ally. Oh my gosh. You know, and that's a bit, I mean, it's part of the, it's part of the movement. I get it, but I think we need to question that. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a lot that needs to be done internally. When we look externally and we see the corporations that are making public statements and declarations and promises to improve, what can we do as a collective to help keep them accountable? As consumers, oh, yeah. you know, like as, as mm -hmm. people who, who engage with these brands. As consumers, um, vote with your dollars. Mm. Honestly, really, I, and again, this is where like the real work of allyship steps in. It's are you willing to, you know, not buy off, buy on, you know, Zara's sales until Zara officially publishes and shares one, their internal directory so there's this whole movement happening on social media now called pull up or shut up asking the brands who have posted the black square to actually show some receipts in, in regards to what their internal team looks like and their leadership team looks like and their executive team looks like mm. um and it's asking people to not purchase from those brands until they've developed a solid concrete action plan one um, being fully transparent in regards to what their what their team looks like, but also what they're committing to doing in regards to changing things if it doesn't look as diverse as they claim. Mm -hmm. And so voting with your dollars is one. I'm seeing a lot of pressure on comments, um, which is great. I'm I, great. I'm not particularly into like call out culture, but I think that calling out brands honestly is is the only way to get them to listen um i think writing to their teams if you can send an email is a good way also but i really think it's time that we hold brands and corporations just as accountable as we do our elected officials mm -hmm. because when we speak of the system 
that's what the system is. It's like, it's capitalism. Capitalism is the system. Um, and democracy is the system. And holding the leaders of those two major systems that drive our current culture accountable to the change that they claim to be about as a PR stunt is imperative. Absolutely. I think we're in an era now where it will be damaging for the companies that are not willing to walk the talk. I don't think a PR stunt is something they can get away oh, yeah. with. Oh yeah. I'm seeing so many brands. I have, I have a listen and learn with a few brands um, next Thursday and I'm so excited to call each of them out. It's a, it's a closed group. Um, but a lot of them have posted the square when I know, I know that they don't, they don't literally don't have a single black person on their team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to what this is going to mean for, yeah, for the culture. But that, that to me is like the exciting part. It is exciting. I think there's a really interesting and unique opportunity with this, albeit very unfortunate movement and sequence of events that has empowered our generation in a way that I've not yet felt to this magnitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as, as emotionally you know, exhausting as it is for Black folks and um, as heavy as it is and as unfortunate as it is, um, I really, really feel like we're on the brink of something. And I, I don't think that ever before has white supremacy been addressed as a very real, very public um, kind of shared consensus issue. Mm-hmm. You know, folks are literally naming what it is. And again, back to my words and the importance of like naming an issue. Um, and that's the first step towards healing. We talked about the brands who might be paying lip service and are really more into performative activism than actual activism, but are there any companies or brands you feel are really paving the way and leading in the form of equality? I actually think that the nonprofit sector Mm. is leading in, in this regards. I think that for the first time ever, in the history of probably like the technological revolution, mm-hmm. the community sector is actually three steps ahead of the private sector. Um, Interesting. In its knowledge, in its intention, in its um, human resources. Um, obviously, the practices are, are still questionable, and I think the system still stems down and still trickles down into the, into the sector and that oftentimes it's like white boards, all white board and then, you know, black staff that's on the front line. Um, but I think in terms of diversity and conversation and movement, the social sector is way ahead of, of the private one. Um, and then in terms of brands, I've seen, I initially had seen this one brand that responded to the pull up or shut up challenge called Milk Makeup. And they shared their numbers on their diversity, which was actually pretty impressive. And I was like, okay, great. 
and they acknowledge that they still needed to do better. Um, but then I read yesterday that the C, the, uh, the black employees on the team all, all had horrible experiences. Mm. So I think, again, to the importance of like, yes, diversity and inclusion. And even the brands that, you know, pull up with the best numbers oftentimes aren't aware of the experience of the black employees right. um, within that. And Instagram and Facebook is a perfect example. Facebook and Instagram have great diversity numbers. But then there was a, cur- there was a thread a few months ago, and I think it was around like October, November. Um, it was like, I think it was like hashtag being black at Facebook or something. And all of the employees were sharing how really traumatic their experience working there was because the space and the culture just wasn't set up to lift their voices and to hear them and to and to hold space for them in the ways that they needed to be. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too. I think a lot of companies have used this as an opportunity to say, well, look how great we're doing, or this has always been a value of ours. We've always yeah. been inclusive. And it's like, it's not just something you could slap on a poster in the kitchen. Like, mm. In the kitchen, right? Like there's some, there's some work that's needed, and I, you know, being in a very socially connected era as well, more and more employees are not having any trouble. Whether you know, maybe not like the the usual suspects of Facebook and Instagram, but go to Glassdoor, go to LinkedIn, and people are feeling more empowered to share their experiences and almost feel a sense of responsibility for the people who will come after. For sure, mm. for sure. You have so much knowledge on marketing, on communications, on storytelling, and your lived experiences. You've just scratched the surface with us here today. I'm so, so grateful for you taking the time. What is the best way for people to connect with you and continue to follow your work? So personal Instagram is Danny double I double underscore J-O. So that's Danny Joe. Um, LinkedIn is Danielle Jocelyn O2. Work can be found um, on Apathy is Boring, apathyisboring.com and or femaledepartment.com. Wonderful. I'll make sure to drop those links in the show notes, as well as the link to Danielle's Medium article, which was absolutely incredible. Are there other articles that we can also read if we follow you on Medium? Yes. So the first one I've just committed to like my writing journey officially. Good for you. (laughs) Thank you. The first article I wrote as like my coming out was one on um, the parallel between spirituality and activism and Mm. the fine line. I think a lot of, a lot of folks who claim to be, you know, spiritual leaders and, and in the wellness space often forget that, um, that also comes with a duty to stand up for what's right. And there's such a fine line between both worlds. And I constantly navigated myself as someone who considers herself both. Mm-hmm. So that was my first piece. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for being willing to share so candidly and have this tough conversation and really bring a perspective that I believe is so, so important to hear. Thank you so much for having me. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.